This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. All right, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, Nubia and Narrative family. How are you guys? Nubia. Nubia, Nubia. Uh, Nubia, Nubia. we were going to talk, look, we're going to talk about Booker T. Washington today, among other things. Otherwise, I'll be rocking my Nubia joint. Listen, I want... Wait, wait, your ranch made that into a shirt? Yes, I want Darian, this seventh grader, who did this. Look, when she, um, hold on, let me show you, Professor Hunter. Good morning. This is a uh, book one of the African Heritage Studies Association Legacy of John Henry Clark. They did a tribute to to our Jegna uh, many years ago, Shelby Lewis and Earl Clowney. And this is published in 2014, not that many years ago, but they've done a second edition. My dear friend, Afia Zakia, Dr. Zakia down in Atlanta, and she's between there and Ghana and Mississippi. So they did one called The Legacy of John Henry Clark. And we talked about it. This just came out. This is the second edition. People have been ordering it. Well, Darian, who uh, aspires to be a veterinarian, saying she's going to do all kinds of things, including create 4D uh, uh, model, uh, 4D replacement uh, organs for for animals. She's in the seventh grade. She got the book and she said, look, I get it. So look at that right there. This is what we're talking about. Nubia, y'all understand, Darian is coming. So I talked to her mom, shout out to them. I mean, we... You know, I got to send her some books or something. I mean, she her, she posted that on social media a couple of weeks no, ago. I, her mom said she was in class. <laughs> she <laughs> she probably had read everything already. She threw she threw up threw up that image in class on a Zoom. How on about a that? Zoom? What? Yeah. Look, I can't tell you what that did to me because I loved it, John Henry Clark. <laughs> I talk to him all the time. He's an ancestor now, but that child it symbolizes. You know, and we'll talk about this in a minute. My my man, Holly Garima, Holly Garima was saying the other day, sometimes transformation skips generations. He mm. quoted Franz Fanon. He was t- actually he was talking to some of his elders and I was sitting there reading and I was what the young people call ear hustling. Because anytime Holly started talking, I just started listening. And he was like, they were talking about Ethiopia and what's going on there. And it was a younger brother talking. He said, man, don't worry about it. He said, you know, social forces are inevitable. There will be change. He said, but every generation doesn't have to pick to participate in the change. He quoted Franz Fanon. He said, you remember when Fanon said every generation got to identify its mission, fulfill it or betray it? It's a choice. And he wow. said, right now, with all this information flooding in, it's very difficult for this generation. So maybe it won't be this generation, he said, but it will come. And he says, and when it comes, we have to remember we have to be ready to have that contribution. So I'm looking at this child and I'm saying, no, we're good. We're good. <laughs> Hold that up one more hand. Hold it up one yes, more. Yes, yes, yes. Listen, I'm telling you, you gave me, you gave me my, as young people say, you gave me my whole life with this shirt. And then we get a hoodie, and I'm gonna rep that joint because you know I love the hoodies. Look at that, this, that girl. I mean, she was inspired. To, I'm saying I ain't mad at you, but the, you know the beautiful thing about this picture too, Professor. And and, and hey, Urias, you did this, bro. I'm gonna tell you right now, is the look in her eye and the look in John Henry Clark eye. You can't fake that. Nah. You're looking like I'm coming. I'm here. <laughs> I've been saying for the past seven years that um, these young people are going to save us. Like this, this generation coming up. Yeah. And, and I never heard about the skipping of the generation. But yeah, this. So our responsibility is to be the elders that they need. 
our responsibility is to make sure that, you know, when they questions and they, they need guidance that they can come to us and that we are um, impeccable with our word and impeccable with our commitment to them to make sure they have everything they need because we need them. So, right. And, and that's what Holly said. Well, we're going to talk about that too in a minute. But, but before we listen, you, you always come up with, man, these points of entry that just blow me away. And then I'm sitting somewhere thinking like, wow, that's it. That's it. You were talking about class earlier this week. Uh, you know? Yesterday. I mean, I had, um, you know, we talked about, of course, uh, Nicki Minaj and, and the, the strange space that we're in. And we got into this whole conversation about journalists and journalism and media and whose fault is this? And why are we listening to people just because they have 27 million followers and they have no scientific background? And how are you researching without any kind of tertiary or foundational scientific knowledge to read about, you know, viruses and immunology and, and, and like, what are you researching? What do you how mean? are you researching? That's you know, right. like that requires something, right? That's right. I'm not right. going to pick up a medical journal and start researching, but if you have the woman that created the, the vaccine, uh, who reached out and is willing to give you chapter and verse of how that happened, a black woman named Kismekia Corbett, and you have- wait, 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 um, Dr. Corbett, did, did you have her on the show? I have not. She's the one doctor I've been trying to get on. I was going to say, and she didn't talk to, she didn't call me, but she going to call Nicki Minaj? All right, well, there's that too. No, I'm just saying, but this is part of, this is part of the challenge, right? I mean, you get a personal call and- <laughs> So here's the thing, right? So if, if everybody's leaning into these celebrities, right? That are leaning into the people that you really need to reach, right? And exactly. and I guess the, the logic is through <laughs> through these celebrities, we can get the messaging out. But that's is, is that the clean glass of water that you're pouring to the people if it's already you know coming through a sieve that is got rocks and dirt and filth in it? I don't know. I just feel like at some point we we have to correct this. So I challenged my students and I said, listen. Um, we're in a situation where I'm not willing to tap out and give up. I'm not going to give up on the fact that we have media that's run by corporations that are bent on algorithms and that need to have people click on things and they don't care necessarily about the truth. They care about dollars more than that. With This capitalism is entrenched in a way, but journalism is the one-stop gap between tyranny. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's the one space where we, the people, have to be able to depend on it. And right now we cannot. We can't trust media. And that's a problem. That means society is surely going to fail because there's no place where you can go to know that the information that I'm getting. And I said, we have a trust issue. Right. So the reason why folk are leaning into Nicki Minaj, because they don't trust Fauci and they don't trust Biden and they didn't trust Trump. And they don't they don't trust that the information that they're getting is, well, I don't know what's in it. But you've been taking chickenpox, measles, all kind of vaccines, yellow fever to go travel forever. To go fast food, food, cough syrup, yeah, you I'm name it, everything in the store. Yeah, what's in Robita? <laughs> what is in Robita? So I'm like, you right, know, what is in Robita? <laughs> what is in Robita? All of a sudden, now we, we're here where everything is, and I get it. Like, it's untrustworthy. People are untrustworthy. I mean, but why, why, did, why, why is there a lack of trust? Yeah, because, because we have people who have uh, financial interests making decisions. And I know, you know, you got Morris Zuckerman owns U.S. News and World Report and the Daily News. You have uh, Rupert Murdoch owning the New York Post and other, you know, other papers. You got Jeff Bezos on the Washington Post. You have. Can I ask you this? I mean, just as, as a footnote to that specific thing or question, rather, as as a practitioner of the craft, 
have you noticed a change in what used to be considered quote unquote flagship in the social structure newspapers i'm saying that because we expect a certain thing of the post yes. and i'll i'll, I'll read the wash i'll read the new york post. but right. the times the wall street journal yes. are increasingly to me anyway they feel like tabloid i mean there's yes. the headlines the even the writing and i'm wondering because i don't know i'm asking you what's your sense tabloid, just, for, just for you know uh history tabloid is how a paper folds out right so you have broadsheets yes. and you have tabloids and tabloids are sensational by nature because of the way in which it folds so it has that giant front section so it's it's, ah. it's on images and projection of it so that's a tabloid washington post new york times la times those are broadsheets but now ah. they have broadsheets with a tabloid mentality which that's a tabloid that's a tabloid okay right? not because it's sensational but because of the way in which it folds and it's a broadsheet broadsheet right okay right. See? teach that's what the uh, old heads is okay go ahead i'm sorry i didn't interrupt so but you're right though you know those you know, those things that used to be about how a paper folds out or, you know, how you fold it now has become an ideology, you know. So now we think tabloid, you think Inquirer, you think National Inquirer, you think New York Post, you think Daily News because of the way in which they put those, you know, headless horse and head, all this, you know, these headlines, <laughs> big pictures. But the mentality is how many eyeballs can I get because our business is predicated upon numbers. Numbers mean we can charge more, more for advertising. Advertising means I can make more dollars to pay myself and others. But they're not investing their dollars in the things that actually free us and give us information. So you shut down you know, international, all kinds of international bureaus, investigative reporting, the things because that costs money and it takes time and it doesn't deliver the big bang that a front page piece on Nicki Minaj would deliver. So we're going to do more Nicki Minaj, less what's happening in Afghanistan with the Taliban and ISIL and, you know, like what's really happening with the women and the children at the gate. You know, we, we're not going to do that because that's not going to bring us. We're going to talk about uh, vaccine and mask wearers. And oh, and then people will and then you can have ad revenue. You can drive. So so when they abandon that field, when they quit that field, is that what, quote unquote, and it's not journalism, obviously, but what people brand as citizen journalism, in other words, social media, is that what is rushed into? Because now everybody with a connection they can upload is right. a reporter. And, is that? You know, thank God for the Chuck Modianos. I had a guy on this week, Michael McWhorter, who was using his platform on TikTok to, and he keeps getting banned because he's like, you, you know, this woman that's yelling at these people, you know, that's cussing out these black people. Okay, who is she? Let's find her name. Let's get her, you know, right. make her famous, you know, like, and George Floyd, good example, people with a camera. But we saw it with the Arab Spring. Those weren't journalists that told us that. Right. Those were people. And unfortunately, we the it's not really our responsibility, but now it is. So now I'm it like, is. Now it is. everybody now. Bro, yeah, I guess so. It has to be because no one else is, you know. So, so, so if, you're a if, you're, if you're a young person, this is, this is fascinating because, again, you interaction with these students who are consuming all this, who were born into that. And something Holly said uh, the other day really made me stop. He said, you know, how do you interact with a generation that came here knowing everything? And, and he didn't mean that they had wisdom or not, but that they were born in a data and in fact, he used a he used a uh, uh, he used a phrase that he said elders in Ethiopia used to use after Holly uh, Holly Selassie was overthrown in 1974, and this Marxist generation came in. He said the old people would say about them, they came out of their mother's wombs talking. In other words, they never learned to listen. <laughs> so if that was true then, now 
It's like they come out, or we come out of our mother's wombs into this digital native place, almost come out with the thumbs. How, how do you, how do, how do people, these young people in particular, any of us now in this, in this environment, how do we cut through all that fire hose of stuff, which people will call information, but is it information? It's just, yeah. Yeah. Is that, I mean, how do we do that? How do we manage that? Because I'm, I'm interested because you talk, you listen to these students, you're interacting with them around this Nicki Minaj conversation as if that's somebody we should be listening to. Listen, I had a, a hour long, I had to, you know, I had to get a little tough because I'm like, well, first of all, what are you not going to do? You know, I said, so uh, what's, mm. what's the background in science? Let's go. You know, what's your background? And so we all in here can have an opinion. I'm the only person that's actually had almost a hundred doctors on my show. I'm not an expert, but I'm going to go get a hundred doctors since the pandemic started. Which is your role, your craft. Let me me convene and vet and then make it available. I've even sat doctors down that have come through. You know, Mm. I had a couple of doctors. I was like, you are preaching propaganda from an administration. You're not answering questions. You can't come back on the show. Rinse and repeat. But again, I said, we're all required to draw a very, very strong line in the sand between what's real and what's not. And if everyone's committed, and especially you students who want to be journalists, your commitment to the truth has to be impeccable. The truth. There can't even be any wavering. Either either it's true or it's not. And in this scientific world, truth changes. It's mutable because as we learn more, like, you know, before the earth was flat and we learned that it wasn't. And then we have to adjust, right? And you learn this virus is new. So we're learning, you know, the efficacy of the vaccine was up to a certain point because that's the only amount of data that we had. And as we have more data, we learn more things. Doesn't mean that you you were purposely misinforming people. You're learning. We're all learning. And so we have to make room for that too. But when you know more, you should express that. Like, if I'm wrong, I'm going to come back in and say, hey, I was wrong about this. And we we have an aversion towards being wrong too in society. So okay. everybody knows everything yeah. and nobody's wrong. Okay, how does this how how does this end? How how does, well, we know how it ends. We know how history tells us how it ends. Ignorance is lethal. We know that. And ideology is lethal. So, I mean, listening to these young people, yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I'm I, I always say I'm too old, but that's not it. I'm not, I'm disinterested. I don't have any investment in it. Again, that's why listening to Holly just set me straight again. I mean, which is invariably, and this is for all of us, the importance of listening to people who have wisdom. You know, you ain't got to always debate. Sometimes just sit there and listen. And so, you know, this week with, you know, Nicki Minaj, Dan Joy Reid coming back and back and forth, and then and then people having rallies in Atlanta. I stand with Nicki, which of course we know if it's on social media, there are bots and propaganda. So can we pause in that just for one second? No, please, no. This is this is what we talk about. When I so I'm on a radio every day, uh, Monday through Friday. Uh, yes. In a space that you know, on any given day, I don't know how many millions. I know we have access to 40 million people at SiriusXM. There'll be several million. The ratings came out this week, right? And so I asked my class, I said, um, you know, so, oh, Tucker Carlson had, you know, and he's da 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 and I, I call him something else on the radio. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> wait, but, wait, um, they, they were caping for, they were. No, 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 they were saying that, you know, but, you know, he has, I said, how many people do you think tune in? The ratings just came out. So I pulled up the ratings. Mm-hmm. What do you think his ratings are? He's the highest rated cable news television show, period, right? 
Somebody said 10 million. Somebody said 5 million. I said, no. Last uh, week, it was less than 3 million. This week, it was 3.5 million. And he's number one. He's number one. Rachel Maddow was 2.5 million. She had a million less. She's the highest rated non-Fox, right? So, so far between the two of them, we somewhere between six and seven million, six and six and a half million. Right. And then Anderson Cooper was less than a million this year, this month. So not even 10 million between the three. I said, how many people in this country? I said, okay. (laughs) Right. Let's say half of them watch cable or television, have access to a television. Okay. Let's say it's 120 million people that have access to television. 3.5 3.5 million watch the highest one, but why are we giving it? How many? That That is such a small. So what happens is we take clips from these shows. We put them on social media. They get spread widely. So a lot of us get to see it, but we're not actually watching. I was like, you know, it's like going on YouTube and watching a clip of an interview that I did. And it was like, well, you da 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 da. I said, did you listen to the 35 minute, minute interview or this eight minute clip? But you've made a whole ass assessment about what this was based on an eight minute clip of a 35 minute conversation or a three hour show that framed a conversation that we led into. It's like reading a book and going in the middle and then reading a couple of pages. I got this. I know what this book is about. You My can't. God. This is how we consume media. And My this God. is how we bestow celebrity. And, that, and that's why the White House calls Nicki Minaj. And that's why Fauci's on TikTok. Because God. both of those. <laughs> that... People. But you, yeah, I guess there is a philosophy to reach the people. But I feel like, you know, again, reaching people in a space that's already you know, drawn quarters, you know, it's like everybody's got their corner of like what I know and who I'm rocking with. Or, 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 or they've been curated to think that. I mean, you know, I mean, I think about Noam Chomsky and Ed Herman years ago at 30 some years ago when they wrote uh, Manufacturing Consent. Mm-hmm. The whole idea that if you want people in a society to do what you want them to do and that you who wants is corporate ent- entities uh, the politicians they buy or rent, shout out to Joe Manchin and many others, who they then want to make policy, you've got to curate in a quote-unquote democracy where people ostensibly have choice. Uh, you've got to curate their desire. You've got to curate their uh, consent. And so, you know, Chomsky and, and Herman, you know, they're saying, well, part of that involves necessary illusions. So you curate a taste for certain things, like uh, who smashing into other people on the other side of this imaginary line uh, scored 28 and who scored 21. And that becomes more important than do I have health insurance? You know, is you gotta, you gotta create necessary illusions, but once you do that, you can manufacture consent, particularly if you're curating this. So these young people, not, I keep saying young people, but it's not young people. The reason I say young people, of course, is because the people who are born into this environment don't realize that this is being curated. So as as you're saying, I mean, as Nicki Minaj and Joy Reid is going back and forth and then you got Lil Nas X and all this dropping, you know, who is a genius at curation. We've talked about him. This is also awards season. So you see the National Book Awards and all all of this is curation. There are this isn't accidental. Nobody's writing a book. And I'm reading um, Honoré Jeffers book, The Love Letters of W.B. Du Bois. I'm like, oh, this is a great book. Oprah Winfrey picked it for the national, and now it's long listed on the national book. That's great. Clint Smith's book, When the Word is Passed, you know, it's on the net. I'm like, 
you know, this book is, to me, this book doesn't go nearly far enough with the type of texts that you're engaging in terms of the memory of African people. But I also know that the National Book Award and like these other awards that Clyde Taylor would be maybe in another context would call the art culture complex, they're curating. So, and as they curate, people think it's their choice, but it's not their choice. It's not their choice. Randall Kennedy just wrote a book. Uh, he's got, I'm reading his chapter now, him and he talking about Derek Bell. He's a law professor. He and Derek Bell back and forth at Harvard. He's talking about my friend. We did disagree. And it was a review in the New York Times review of book, uh, book review last week by John McWhorter that was trash. And a lot of people who read those books were saying, oh, yes, it should have got somebody better to do it. And I'm laughing because I said to myself, you know, relatively speaking, there are fewer people who will read any of the books I just mentioned than watch Tucker Carlson or watch Anderson Cooper or watch Rachel Maddow to your observation, meaning this tiny fraction of people are somehow being curated to move decision making that impacts everybody. And I guess I'm I'm wondering how how do we well, one of the answers is we're here. I built a place where, you know, we're building, people are coming, realizing, you know, I don't have to be in that environment. But how do we attack it for all these folk who can't tell the difference? And it's not because they're 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 stupid. This curation has backfired because it has created so I many. We got uh, the hillbilly horde out there. Hey, oh, the about, yeah, they down, they down here right now. Yeah, I know. Go the like, you know, we got folk over there. We got black folk, anti this black on the same side. One of my students was like, "Well, the left, the, the left media." I was like, "We don't use terms like that in in this class. We're right. not going to do that because uh, I don't know what that is." Exactly. I think, I think it's. I think they all have the same agenda, and they're just playing Marriott. You know, they're just puppet master to all of us. So what we're going to do is look at what media should be, and then try to create that. Everybody in here should have a commitment. So I think that's number one. Anybody that has a, a brain and a voice. Uh, Make sure that your commitment to truth and the people around you don't accept it, don't yes. leave space for it, don't don't give breath to it. And if it means cutting ties with people, I feel like I'm valuable enough a human being that if you want to be in my presence, you're gonna to have to come with a certain kind of mind frame, which is I'm committed to the truth. Right. We can argue about you know opinions, but if it's factual, we're not arguing over facts. Not in my life. Not in my world. Like let's stop. So what happens that. when you? agree on the facts but disagree on the interpretation that's that's open to argument but how we argue about that is is in love with respect you know and ah that's where i'm not trying to change you you know because if if your opinion of it is just you know me not seeing something let's let's figure out how we can see things you know uh, and meet maybe in the middle or agree to disagree but what we're not going to do is create this whole ass like for me i'm watching Nicki minaj and i'm like what's your game here to be right, like you don't have the scientific background. And even though you also said that you would take the vaccine, why not lean into that? Even Trump said, I, I'm vaccinated. Please, y'all get vaccinated. Like, well, I mean, without due respect, I mean, <laughs> she is just talking, which is fine. Everybody has the right to talk. But again, curating, Call you know, Mal Malcolm said something, Malcolm X said something, you know, in one of, those, one of those famous interviews that we see everywhere now used to, you know, not be able to see it everywhere, but now the technology makes it possible. He was on our interview show and he said, what other group of people have entertainers as their leaders? 
And so, you know, and the white man sitting there looking at, yeah, 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 what do white people have entertainers as their leaders? Now I'm not talking about the gossip page. Was it page five? They call it in the, you just taught me the, the tabloid, right? Page five. No, no. You know, Nicki Minaj, do what you do. That's great. Lil Nas X, who started out, and you you corrected me. I, I said Cardi B was the Nicki Minaj last week. Yeah, as a fanboy, what do they call them? Barbies? Is that what yeah, the, yeah, I think they're Barbies. Barbies or whatever, you know. But then Lil Nas X realized that it's not even about being a musician. It's about branding and curation. So now, I mean, hey, go with God. Y'all do what y'all do. But what you're raising in terms of we can agree to disagree, the point of being able to have the same facts and even we have different interpretations. But when that translates into real world consequences for people who don't have enough to eat, children who don't have a place to stay, women and men who are suffering, state violence, violence against each other, no employment, no ownership of their homes or even the capacity to rent or have a be unstable in every, then a difference of opinion translates into harm and some things, you know, we should theoretically be able to agree on, but that has never been the case in human history. And in this world system that is stratified by class, by race, shot through with gender, shot through with this hierarchy, it is literally costing us our lives. No one should be listening to Nicki Minaj. No one should be listening to Greg Carr, Karen Hunter on these issues. However, Karen Hunter is going to go find the people we should be listening to, have the debate, process that and everybody can see okay very interesting at the same time Nicki Minaj is going to sound like anybody else who doesn't know and if you listen to her it's because we've been curated to listen to her yep. and but but then the tail wags the dog come on and then you know what I'm saying then the White House says we're gonna call Nicki Minaj and then she gets on social media and says I've been invited to the White House and I'm going no they didn't invite you they called you, but guess what? If enough people of your people bang on them, they will invite you. And now you standing up next to the president, the vice president. Meanwhile, people with legitimate science at background can't even get a return call from the people who are 10th down on the list. That's when you know we're in trouble. But you know. also we're in trouble because Kanye is occupying the top 23 positions on the gospel billboard charts. The top the gospel. Oh well, well, but there it is. Is it trouble? It's it's trouble when we, um, when we look at the social structure. Come on. Meaning the billboard or whatever the 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 ratings are chart as the authority. In other words, when we when we look at the, if we could, it's like the U.S. News and World Report rankings came out last week, and. The HBCUs and in, in their annual Hunger Games uh, <laughs> began to extol the virtue of being the top HBCU. I think Spelman was number one, Howard was one, number two, Tuskegee is up there and there. And, and they're saying we don't really care about these ratings. However, we're number okay. See, this is why none of you can be trusted. Because <laughs> you 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 think somehow that you can simultaneously say you don't care and then through your actions show you care more than anything about this social structure gaze. It is absolutely the barometer by which you judge your value. And you went off the rails. And, and it, you know, I've been saying this for a long time. In fact, I think post desegregation, 
And we know that the public schools are more segregated now than they were in 1954. But post-legal desegregation, black education has been without a common purpose, if it ever had one. They're, they're shot through a class. And so there's been a, a long deterioration of a consensus around what we are trying to do. Now, it's been papered over with rhetoric. We're about progress. We're about transformation. We're about helping the community. Yeah, all that's rhetoric, because now in 2021, we have service turned into let's go feed some people. Let's go clean out a lot. Well, hold on. Let me take this picture. Boom. It's on the gram service. No, see, <laughs> it is this. So I, I guess on on today, as we're live in Nubia, hey, Nubia. And for those of you who are watching this uh, a few hours later on YouTube, understand that the world is being built. And, you know, we say less because that's the way we're supposed to do it. As we're here, you brought up an anniversary that sent me into a set of questions that I think tie very directly to this in terms of how we, how, who we listen to is curated. Yes. That's why I got, that's yeah. why I'm repping my people down okay. there. I was listening um, to the, the speech. Well, you know, they have versions of it. And I think it's in, in, um, up from slavery chapter 14, I think. Mm -hmm. it's Come on now. Yes. The, the whole the whole speech is there. Um he gave a speech at a oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah, we're talking about we talking about Talia Farrow, Booker yeah. T. Booker T. Washington. Yes. You know, there's such a debate. And I was thinking about him because, you know, Booker T versus W. E. B. That's not that's not a governance conversation to be had. Dudley Randall. That's right, the poet. There's so many powerful things that he that, that he brings up that are relevant to today. So I thought ironically, this is the 126th. Yep. Uh, anniversary today of today. that speech. And I thought it would be great for us to, you know, go down as we start to think about who should we listen to? Ooh. Um, who do we trust? How, how do we foment trust? Those of us who are out there. And I think part of that also has to be for us to reject all things that are not true. Like we, mm. we, we do the, 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 um, I call it, you know, it's like the frog being boiled one degree at a time. We have boiled ourselves into death, uh, in terms of our humanity, in, in our morality and our community, because we accept all of the micro things, not just the microaggressions from, from outside, but from within. And we allow people to assault us just a little bit, thousand death by a thousand cuts. And we accept that. Okay, you did that. We accept that. Okay, we know you're not quite right, but we still gonna rock with you. We know that you're wrong here, here, and here, but I love your music. We know you're wrong here, here, and here, but I love your comedy. We know you're wrong here and here, but politically, you will reclaim your time. And I like that, even though my community hasn't seen too many uh, great wins in the last 40 years that you've been in office. <laughs> that's okay. You know, you 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 give great chicken dinners and- How about that? You, you, know, you, you, uh, you know, you put out a report every year that makes me feel good about being black, but yet I haven't seen any progress in nope. 50 years. Nope. Keep- accepting it okay you got a tv show we're happy i'm glad to see you on tv but you're supposed to be an activist why aren't you in the streets changing anything how come nobody's getting convicted on your watch okay you represent these families that's great you got money they got money they got settlements but we're still dying at the hands of all right we're okay with that because there's an award show and you're going to be on there and we're happy. and we, you know so it's like at some point we got to say no that's wrong I can still love you and and chastise and challenge and i must still love you and chastise and challenge out of love 
I want like Cornell to would say, no question. Or, or, or so you don't need to be out there. You can sit down. It's okay. Everyone doesn't need, need to be in the pulpit. Or we can stop. Or we can stop watching. How about that? Well, or we're we not watching. watching. That's the thing. We're actually not really watching. No. So that's the other thing. Wow. We're actually not really watching. You know what? And even even these bestsellers, you know, that could be ten thousand copies sold. You know that? How about that? Can we talk about that? Uh, in fact, I laugh I about it. Them, you know, so I, <laughs> I, them. I know what the numbers look like. You know, when, when you read the New York Times, uh, 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 the last pages, of course, we know in New York Times book review is the um are the uh the bestsellers, and I laugh every week because all of the top, well, most of the top bestsellers are the books that the right wing billionaires buy by the truckload and then dumps and then they number one number two bill o'reilly and then tucker carlson miss laughing this ain't got nothing to do with nothing anybody reading that yeah no 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 and and they do buy them and they do buy them and they buy them and they disseminate at their conventions and their conferences and they they count as sales those are sales absolutely they they do count as sales but they ain't reading them they just you know it's so funny you say that i think about uh gil scott heron i think it was 1982 his uh his song B movie and you know he's spoken I mean talk about spoken word I mean word is spoken or written anyway but in B movie at the end he says uh as Wall Street goes so goes the nation uh jobs are down money is scarce and common sense is at an all-time low on heavy trading he said movies are looking better than ever and now no one is looking because we're starring in a B movie and we would have read ahead John Wayne who would have rather had John Wayne? In other words, because he starts that song by saying, you know, America is looking for nostalgia. They want to go backward, even if it's just as far as last week. And, and Gil Scott Heron says, you know, they're looking for their cinematic heroes and they're looking for John Wayne. But John Wayne is no longer available. So in 1982, they have the man who uh, Gil Scott Heron called Ronald Reagan. And of course, Ronald Reagan was a B movie actor. And so who makes the transition into, in fact, he in some ways sets the template for uh, an actor becoming a politician. Um, You know, before you have a politician who engages in stagecraft as the media, social, as the science and technology change, that's John F. Kennedy. Right. And then, but Ronald Reagan is the move from, okay, now you're an actor, head of the Screen Guild. Now you're governor of California. Now you're the president. And so, Gil Scott Heron goes through this song showing how while the illusion becomes the reality, the thieves are busy. And he says, Wall Street goes, so goes the nation. Expand that out to the corporate. Y'all see this week, the French are mad at the Americans and the British who are getting with the Australians against the Chinese. Oh, Europe is fracturing. So by the time you get through the uh, B movie, as, 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 as Gil Scott Heron says, meanwhile, while y'all watching TV and looking at television ads, this is years before YouTube, years before Facebook, years before Instagram and TikTok, which means it's even worse now to think about how Holly was talking about it the other day. Gil Scott Heron's like, why y'all doing that? These people are st- are stealing in open uh, venue. They are, you know, I mean, we, we, we both saw this, uh, what was it called? The, the philanthropist, what was the thing on CBS? Uh, that they that they pulled back oh, because uh, oh, it wasn't the philanthropist. It was hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Benefactor, some shit. No, no, it began with an A. Uh, it began with an A. The, uh, the activist. Uh, activist. The activist. The activist. Yes, yes. And of course, too soon. Yeah, we'll turn it into a documentary. Yeah, because but look who's look. You got uh, I start to say Rock Nation, Live Nation, the largest live venue. 
these people are not going to stop because it's all performance. And Gil Scott Heron called it an 82. He said, you know, jobs are down, money is scarce, common sense is at an all-time low and heavy trading. Movies were looking better than ever. And that was 82 when Christopher Reeves still had to have strings on to fly as Superman. Now everything is digital. Movies are looking better than ever. And now no one is looking. In other words, no one is looking at what matters because we're starring in a B movie and we would have rather had John Wayne. And then he ends it, of course, singing, you don't need to be in no hurry. You ain't never really got to worry. You don't need to check on how you feel. Just keep repeating that none of this is real. And if you're sensing that something's wrong, well, just remember that it won't be too long before the director cuts the scene. Yeah, this ain't really your life, ain't really your life, ain't really nothing but a movie. This ain't really your life. People fighting over Lil Nas X while he count money. People fighting over <laughs> Nicki Minaj while the company that's promoting them is making all the money. We talked about that last summer. Gil Scott Heron is like, you know, you don't need to be in no hurry. You ain't never even really got to worry. You don't even need to check on how you feel. Just keep repeating that none of this is real. And the people are, meanwhile, taste is being curated. I mean, and this is where when you, you know, remind us that today, 126 years ago, Booker Talley Ferio Washington, the principal of Tuskegee Institute, um, is curated to be the spokesman for the race in Atlanta at the Atlanta Cotton Exposition. You know, that speech catapults him to a role that shouldn't exist, that doesn't exist leader of the race and guess what nobody black voted for him to be the leader of the race first of all there's no meeting where people vote nobody you know the, the algorithms tell us that Lil Nas X is the leader and apparently Nicki Minaj is the leader of the race and none of it is real her people from Trinidad Nicki Minaj in Trinidad the prime minister Trinidad on Trinidad television with the chief doctor in the country saying you know we wasted we wasted a whole week trying to track down this person you're talking about that had a flat tire and I started laughing flat tires that what y'all go I mean you got the leader of the government in Trinidad on TV talking about flat tires cuz somebody who ain't got nothing to do with policy making then go off script and sound like somebody standing on the corner who don't know nothing about it. And all them people are now going to put themselves at risk because we are in a B movie. But it was curated. The movie was scripted. The movie was cast. The movie was shot. The movie was distributed. And people say, well, is this conspiracy theory? No, 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 no. We're not talking about a meeting where people got together and said, do this. We're talking about a system that relies on distraction on manu to manufacture consent that requires necessary illusions. And that's why Booker Washington, you know what I did. I mean, there, there are, of course, books, 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 books on Booker Washington. And most of my Booker Washington stuff is in storage. I had enough of them around here, but I didn't, I, I resisted the urge again. But there are a few that I kind of keep around because they just remind me so much of, um, of this issue. I wanted to, and I still would want to, like Booker T. Washington. 
Although liking or disliking anybody ain't really the point. Well, I guess it is the point in a culture where we're supposed to honor each other's humanity and have love and respect for each other. So there is that. Um, I stopped short of where my brother Cornel West stops, though. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more like Elijah Muhammad in regard to some people. But anyway, and David Walker, for that matter. I mean, we started talking. You know, I mean, I ain't going to put that on Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm. I put that on David Walker. We talked about Malcolm last week. But, um, you know, the question becomes, who picks? So when Malcolm asked, you know, what are the group of people you know have athletes and entertainers? He didn't say athletes. I'm saying athletes now because I guess Isaiah Thomas doesn't like two anthems. And uh, and then I'm, uh, did you see that? No, I did not. The yeah, yeah. Apparently, I mean, he said, you know, why are we singing the so-called Black National Anthem? Can we just have one anthem? And it's like, okay. And I'm like, hey, I ain't got no problem with Isaiah saying that. My problems is with any human being who would listen to him. I mean, I, everybody can have their opinion. First of all, it's not an anthem, uh, Isaiah. It's been labeled the Black National Anthem, but lift every voice is really and sing is really a hymn. If you look at it, anthems are typically like bombing stuff and killing people. That's what the Star Spangled Banner is. But lift your voice is a little different. But either way, I have no problem, brother. Don't we should... America the Beautiful. Don't we? Don't we have that as well? Like, what... oh yeah. Well, but we can have America the Beautiful and the Star Spangled. Nah, Banner. they see America the Beautiful doesn't get the job done. You know, I think about remember uh, what was it? Abraham, uh, what was that? Uh, what was that album Ray Charles did? It's got Abraham Martin and John on it, but he's got his version of America the Beautiful. And Ray Charles is slick, man. Ray Charles Robinson. Ray Charles is like, uh, he said, uh, he, first of all, he's got that 6 8, that gospel. Dun, 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 dun. Then he comes in talking like, uh, he, here's how we used to sing it in school. Okay. Oh, beautiful, for heroes proved in liberating strife. Who more than self their country loved and mercy more than life? Well, wait a minute. Um, I'm talking about America, America. Oh, on the and he go, then he go, then he goes back. Oh, beautiful. See what he did? He took the second verse, made it the first verse. <laughs> And sang the value of collective sacrifice. Then he went back, oh beautiful, for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain. He didn't start with that verse and he changed. And mercy more than life. Mercy. Wait, I'm looking at the wait a minute. Maybe I don't remember America the Beautiful. <laughs> That's very nice. America the Beautiful don't get the job done. You need the Star Spangled Banner in a white settler colony. Why? Because you're bombing people, you're killing people, the bombs bursting in the air, all that stuff. And then when you get to that third verse, you're saying, and all you Negroes decided with the British, we're going to hang y'all too. In other words, okay, yeah, we need this song. And people say, well, people don't sing all three verses of the Star Spangled Banner. So I don't know why people keep bringing up that third verse. Forget the words, keep the spirit. In fact, when you hear Kosesikelele Africa, Malupaganisu Pondowayo, the South African national anthem. God bless Africa. God bless the people. God bless the land. And then because they had to merge with the former settlers, the apartheid government, and create one anthem, you know when you've gotten to the old Africana, the old national party, the old uh, South African Republic part of it, when the music changes. Oh, South Africa, my land. Right. Boom, boom, boom. Punch you in the face. 
It's very different than a hymn. So Isaiah, I'm with you, brother. Let's have one song. What are the first five words of your song, Isaiah? The first five words of your song might be, oh, say, can you see? My answer very briefly is no, I can't because I wasn't at Fort McHenry with uh, Francis Scott, slave key, slave in slavery key. Wasn't there. No, if I was in Baltimore, as Gerald Horn says, I was probably would have been trying to swim in the water to get to the British ship against you. So when you ask me, oh, say, can you see? Nope. The first five words of mine is lift every voice and sing. So I'm with you. Let's get one. We're going to be on separate sides. So we can have the same facts. There are two songs, but the interpretation is going to be different based on where we are. You know, I didn't want um, them to even, I feel like you talk governance structure, social structure. Yeah. The lift every voice and sing is a social structure, is a governance structure song. That's our song. Well, but see, that's the point. I don't even want they putting a note on. I just, I, well, I Professor Hunter, what happens is they're curating. In other words, you can't run this game the way you used to. You can't just run out these old white songs, these old white men, these old white ideas. So you curate, you bring in the ones who will be enough to create a little bit of a, a of a steam pressure valve because the, the ultimate goal is to maintain control, to maintain the hierarchy. We know we're making progress when the people you curate look closer to our governance structure. They would never have put lift every voice and sing in anything in the NFL. And Jay-Z, let's be clear, brother, whether you were talking in Robert Kraft's ear or the commissioner's ear or whatever, you didn't do it. You've done nothing, bruh. You billionaire, you and your wife, she got more money than you do, that's great. Hey, man, hey, body and Clyde, right? You know, all I want in this uh, life of sin is me and my girlfriend, me and my boyfriend. That's great. Go with God. You did nothing. You're not capable of changing. You've been curated. You understand? In other words, they saw your face as you busted in. They said, shit, it's a draft. Come on in. Nigga, what? <laughs> in other words, <laughs> you thought you worked your way into that space. No. What happened was this system understands that in order for it to maintain the hierarchy, in order to maintain control, it must concede at key moments when it's clear that the thing is on the verge of collapse. And those concessions, its job is to make those concessions as small as possible. So we just passed another anniversary. Dave's Iron just wrote a book on, you know, just published his book on, on Colin Kaepernick. Let's be clear. Colin Kaepernick will never throw another pass in the National Football League. Jay-Z can sit on the stage and they can sing, lift every voice and sing, however, because not just because Colin Kaepernick and these other cats took knees, but because we were in the streets. The thing they were taking a knee about was in the streets. And that's why they sing and lift every voice and sing. And so we can gauge the fear of in the social structure of losing control by the concessions. So all these black people now, and, and but, but at the same time, conversely, when you look at the nature of the concessions, you still see the curation. The concessions do are firmly aimed at absorbing any governance energy, particularly self-determination and maroonage. No, never maroonage. Absorbing it into a narrative that will ultimately retreat to that social structure mean. I'm quite sure that one of the factors, and we'll never know, maybe we will, maybe we will, maybe Misha Green will tell it one day, or maybe she doesn't even know. But I would suspect, I won't say quite sure, because it can't be sure, but I would suspect that one of the factors in not renewing um, Lovecraft Country was that this 
gestures too far in the direction of the uncontrollable, the ungovernable. And so, you know, we're very comfortable with the protest tradition if we can begin to subsidize it. We've seen this before. This is Booker Washington. And in fact, one of the books that, you know, looking at today, um, and this is actually just a just a convenient uh, place for this article I'm about to talk about this chapter because this this chapter actually appeared in the Village Voice. Did they still publish the Voice? Uh, no, I don't think so. Wow, I remember because it, it, it cost money and then it went free. This would have right. been 20, 30 years ago when I first uh, came to New York for my first time when I clerked at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, summer nineteen eighty nine, second year of law school. Uh, I started reading the Village Voice. And of course, that was at the time when there was no internet like that. So uh, the Brooklyn City Sun, you know, I always that, uh, uh, Clinton Cox, um, Armand White, you know, I always read his film reviews. As, you know, you, you ain't got to agree with Armand White. In fact, many times you'd be mad at him. But one thing for sure, he going to need no film history. So reading that Brooklyn City Sun, Cooper, I think, Andrew Cooper was the public. Utrecht Lee was over there. I mean, um, oh, man, he's... These your people, you know what I'm saying? And those circles must have been very small at that time, huh? Like all the black journalists knew each other, huh? Yeah. Wow, wow. I loved Brooklyn. In fact, I loved the City Sun so much when I moved back, when I came back to Columbus, Ohio in the fall, I subscribed. So in my mailbox on the week would be the City Sun, the Amsterdam News, and the Village Voice. Greg Tate was writing for the Village Voice at the time. Yes. You know, uh, man, Greg, Greg Tate, brilliant, man. This cat, man, I mean, you know, and, and these are now here we are in 2021 and there are probably people listening. So I don't know none of them people. Right. Because the people, you know, now are the ones that have been curated for you to know. Hmm. And that, that that's no shade on them. But when you say journalists, I say journalists, you say black journalists, whatever name you coming up with now, they got curated recently. All that other generation. See, we're in this conversation, Professor Hunter. You're a bridge figure because you not. Uh, old head like uh what's my man name who used to uh his 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 daughter took up Tatum Tatum right yeah well Wil Wilbur Tatum Wilbur Tatum right Wilbur Tatum's an his ancestor now right he, yes, he, he is. yes his, he is. his daughter took over she's still Eleanor, a yeah okay but see even she a little I mean you know, there's a there there are generations and, and see what the social structure does with us is it tries to cut us off from our institutional memory. And so for those of us who have institutional memory, who curated it very carefully, you know, then we understand that it only works for us in terms of our liberation struggle when we remember. And if we remember, it's not just our duty to remember, it's our duty as, as Hollywood used the metaphor of fertilizer. He said we must fertilize the next generation because maybe it won't be the next generation. Maybe it'll be the generation after that. So here I am in my 50s, and here this child is in the seventh grade, but she's connected to somebody she never met in life who I knew who was my elder. Guess what? It works. Institutional memory works. So this is going to go on. This is going to go on. But as I was saying, um, the Village Voice, uh, there was a brother uh, who just retired University of Pennsylvania, a political scientist by the name of Adolph Reed Jr. His father was a brilliant political scientist out in Arkansas and worked different places. But at any rate, New Orleans, you know, I think was where Reed was born. Um, so there's a whole tradition of black political scientists, uh, Southern University, University of Arkansas, Pine Bluff. If you know anything about the ENCOPES, um, the black political scientists, there's a history there. Shelby Lewis, in fact, who co-edited the Legacy of John Henry Clark uh, book, walked you through that history. But at any rate, Reed 
hardcore, you know, and there are people, quote unquote, on the left, or as, as my friend Gerald Horn always says when he gets into it, uh, our friends on the left. When he says our friends on the left, he's usually talking about the white left. And by that, I mean the real left, like the Marxists, hardcore socialists, um, even even other ideological formations. But it's not left, right, like they talk about. They, every, the Democrats and Republicans, neither one of them are left. Now, there are people within the Democratic Party formation who might be considered left, like an uh, Ocasio-Cortez, although at the Met Gala, you there with a dress on talking about tax the rich. And I'm like, I think this is this 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 creates such a cognitive dissonance that I'm sure Antonio Gramsci would be laughing. This is exactly what I'm talking about. In other words, you don't overturn a system by going into the system talking about you're going to overturn the system. This is the part of the, this is the, the little pressure valve release, right? But at any rate, I mean, I prefer her dress to Lil Nas X uh, fake Iron Man suit. But hey, it's all spectacle. Again, this ain't really your life. Ain't really your life. Ain't really nothing but a movie. It's some homeless people, the unhoused people in New York City. And they don't give a damn who wore what to the Met Gala. But at any rate, what you see is um, Adolph Reed is a hardcore, I mean, class, class. Some people call him a class reductionist. Everything is about class. What about race? It's about class. Well, gender is about class. And I think that is, that's an overstatement of his political philosophy. I learned a lot from Adolf Reed, just like I learned a lot from a lot of people. You know, I agree with Clarence Thomas on a lot intellectually as it comes, when it comes to the idea of black self-defense, black self-determination. He's big proponent of the Second Amendment. I've talked about this book. I'm rereading it because, you know, I'm in the middle of class at the law school at Howard, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas, Corey Robin. I recommend this book if y'all want to get a sense of Clarence Thomas. Now, of course, Clarence Thomas, just like uh, Amy Comey Barrett last week, both in public speeches, I think both at Notre Dame, said that, um, you know, they're worried about the undermining of respect for the institution of the Supreme Court. And I agree with them wholeheartedly. Uh, I say, yeah, yeah, there is an undermining of respect. Um, who, who caused that? Oh, it was you. Congratulations. It's over, baby. It's over. In other words, it ain't over today. It ain't over next week. It ain't over next year. But the trajectory of the deterioration of this existing social structure is clearly within sight. How do we know? Because of the concessions it's making. And the concessions it makes. So anyway, Adolph Reed wrote an article in the Village Voice. Um, this would have been back in the late 80s, I think, or maybe the early. Now, I was in Philly, but it hadn't been there long. Called, What Are the Drums Saying Booker? The Curious Role of the Black Public Intellectual. And he starts this article with, uh, a throwback to an era that if you're if you're not like you got to be almost over 50 and even then barely you wouldn't remember this we may remember tarzan we remember tarzan and they keep making tarzan i expect they'll make another one another two another three right i mean they did one with the guy that was from true blood right he was gray stoke in in central african hell samuel l jackson we talked about that too played george washington williams which if you know anything about the history of george washington williams in the congo and his critique of what the belgians were doing there you would have thrown up to know that he took that role. But at any rate, um, so they'll make another Tarzan, but Adolph Reed starts with um, a TV adventure series that neither one of us will remember. We weren't around to see it, but it's one of those 1940s, 50s. In a typical episode of Ramar of the Jungle, an early television adventure series, the two heroes of the show spend most of their time on safari, 
attended to by a coterie of native bearers. Whenever they hear drums in the distance, the whites summon their head bearer, quote, Willie, what are the drums saying? End quote. Willie, a Sancho Panza kite-like servant, ah, Pancho, ah, Sancho, remember that other uh, steps forward, quote, Buana, drums say Simba come soon, much danger, end quote. On noticing a furtive sullenness among the bearers, the hero again inquires, quote, Willie, what's going on with the men? End quote. Willie answers dutifully, quote, men afraid, say they don't want to go into leopard men territory, afraid of evil spirits, end quote. Adolf Reed writes, in these vignettes, Willie was enacting the definitive role of the black public intellectual, interpreting the opaquely black heart of darkness for whites. Of course, this connection couldn't be observed at the time because the category black public intellectual didn't yet exist. It wasn't invented until nearly four decades later when several youngish black professors with ties to invisibility within the cultural studies slash cultural politics precincts of the academic left began using it to refer to themselves and one another. Then he starts naming names. Boy, people didn't like this article when it came out. I was laughing the whole time, not because it read like gossip, although some of it does, but because he hit too close to home. Now, I don't know what was in Adolf Reed's mind because a lot of these people, his friends, colleagues, comrades, he argues with them back and forth. But I know what's in my mind when I read that. I'm not thinking about individuals as much as I'm thinking about how people are brought into a structure that isn't invested in the well-being of all the people in the society, particularly black people, particularly brown people, particularly indigenous folk, particularly Asians, particularly those who are not white. Anti-whiteness is real. Anti-whiteness has hardened into something that affects the life chances of all the non-white people and many of the white people in the society. In other words, it's closer to what some people might call racial capitalism. You know, Cedric Robinson and then my uh, my colleague and former student, Josh Myers, just uh, published a book that just came out on Cedric Robinson. I encourage people to get it. You know, he's walking through the history of this brother whose people came out of Alabama, Alabama, who ended up in the Bay Area, who's really kind of working in the tradition of Oliver Cox, working in the tradition of world systems theory people writing in the 1930s, 40s and 50s in places like the Journal of Negro Education. It's talking about, you know, in this country, race performs a function that is close to to, cla uh, to class. Race and, race and class are co-mingled. And, uh, and then, of course, Oliver Cox writes about race, caste, and class, which ironically is not the kind of intellectual foundation out of which another curated uh, Black, quote-unquote, public intellectual like Isabel Wilkerson. You know, the One for the Sons is an incredible book. Then you read caste and you say, okay. And then people saying, caste is the best thing. I said, did y'all ever read Oliver Cox? Do you know Cedric Robinson? No, you're curating what you can take, right? But at any rate, what the reason I brought up Adolf Reed is because Adolf Reed goes on in an article to say these black public intellectuals, and that label became a thing. He he traces it to the late 80s, early 90s, when they're writing in the New Yorker and the Atlantic. These are black public intellectuals. And I'm sure you can connect the dots now since then to see this is the one you should listen to. This is the one you the talking head kind of phenomenon. He says, you know where I trace this to? Booker T. Washington. He says Booker T. Washington is the first black individual in American society, in the U.S. society, in this U.S. social structure, as, as we would call it in the African states framework, who was curated out of white interests 
varying white interests that converged, and we'll talk about that in a second. It said, well, before him, there was Frederick Douglass. Yeah, but see, Frederick Douglass and them came out of enslavement. So whether it's Frederick Douglass, Martin Delaney, whether it's Sojourner Truth or where it's Harriet Tubman, whether it's Linda Brent, whether you know, Harriet Jacobs, whether it is um, Oluda Equiano, if you want to go international with it, Augustus Vasa, the African, the people who's uh, William Still, I mean, you name the people who are uh, Mariah Stewart. I'm thinking about people keep coming in my head, the so-called black abolitionists and those who had come out of enslavement. Stewart not in that category, neither David Walker, but those who came out of enslavement, Nat Turner, whose writings or who as told to survive are clustered primarily around the broader category of enslaved Africans trying to get free. So there's no spokesperson. Douglas kind of bridges it because he outlives the end of enslavement and lives until 1895. Ironically, the same year Booker Washington gives that September speech in Atlanta. Remember, Fred Douglas had collapsed and died at his house down the street here, Cedar Hill in Southeast DC, Anacostia earlier that year. So there people said, well, there's a vacuum. No, there's no vacuum because there's no one leader. You understand? A bunch of them cats that came out of enslavement or came out of the period when people were enslaved we're still around. Henry McNeil Turner, still around. I mean, you know, Willis Williams, Martin Luther King's grandfather on his mama's side. You know, the, these people are fighting and struggling. Douglas is an archetype, the Lion of Anacostia. When he makes transition, he's overlapping with this next generation. Booker Washington's born in 1856. He was born into enslavement. Hales Ford, Virginia, right? We know that. And we read up from slavery, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a riveting narrative. But understand that that becomes part of a new iteration. When we think about the African studies framework, that becomes, uh, look at the science and technology category. Science and technology category of the six categories in African studies framework. We have, of course, social structure, governance structure, ways of knowing, fourth category, science and technology. The question in science and technology is what forms of technology what ways of thinking about and applying science did African people use uh, during the period that we're studying? When you see these autobiographies, these slave narratives, the form of technology is the book. The form of technology is the broadside, is the newspaper, Freedom's Journal, you know, 1827, John Brown Westworm, you know, Sam Cornish. You know what's crazy, Professor Hunter? I have a young lady who is the five times, in other words, Five times great-granddaughter, her great-great-great-great-great-grandfather is John Brown Westworm. He's in my class. She's in my class. And she she was talking, we were reading, piece we were reading, and she unmuted herself. She's talking, I'm like, wow. And she started going through the family history. He's from Jamaica. Said, this is beautiful. I mean, so when I look at this sh at that shirt, I understand, you know, when I see young Darian on that shirt, they're coming. It ain't got to be this generation right now obsessed with Nicki Minaj and obsessed with Lil Nas X. God bless y'all. It might be 2038. It might be 2150. If the, if the sun hadn't baked us all, every generation, as Franz Fanon said, got to identify its mission and then Fanon said, fulfill it or betray it. In other words, you ain't got to fulfill it. You know, read as my man Lewis Gordon wrote in his more recent book, read what Fanon said. You know, we, we put Fanon on T-shirts, but, you know, understand you ain't you ain't got to be part of it. As my man um, Baba Ajay Okoto uh, used to say, now an ancestor uh, who started with, with his with his family and, and, and comrades Nation House uh, here. 
um, as Baba Ajay said, you know, if you don't do it, that's okay. The ancestors will make sure that the next generation will take that responsibility. You just won't be part of it. Now you got to reproduce. I mean, that'll be your contribution. <laughs> you gave birth to another generation. Now you move out the way. But the point, the point I'm about to raise is that when you see the science and technology applied in the 19th century, the, that's a delivery system. People read, but there's no internet. There's no television. There are no movies. So those those broadsheets, broadsheets, is that what you call it? That's that's not the tabloid. That's the broadsheet. Broadsheet, yeah. The Anglo-African, 1859. Y'all go look that up. That's I love Martin Robeson Delaney. I mean, man, we talked about that whole piece we did over here on John Brown. You know, you see Martin Delaney. Martin Delaney is a newspaper guy with Fred Douglas, Pittsburgh Mystery. Then he works with the North Star. He's starting his own stuff. The Anglo-African. He's serializing his novel Blake. You waiting on Blake to see how this rebellion is gonna come out? You read and read and read and read and read. Now, by the time you get to Booker Washington, you're on the verge of recorded sound. We know Booker Washington's voice because he spoke into one of those Victrola-looking things. So we have him reciting the Atlanta Cotton Exposition speech but not in 1895 and so what we see is that the science and technology of the age the telegraph is there now the capacity to create communities imagined communities to borrow from another writer from another tradition british uh, benedict anderson you know the academics will know what i'm talking about but it's not important in other words Stands are imagined communities, to borrow from another white man, Eminem, Marshall Mathis. Stands are imagined communities. I'm a barb. Okay, you're a barb. Okay. I'm part of the K-Hive. I'm with Kamala Harris. You know, we, okay. I'm with... uh uh Beyonce. I'm with the, I'm with Bay. We know we, we, okay. I stand for, okay. Did you meet, do you know him? Do you know her? No, I never met them. Right. You're all convening around curation, science and technology. The technology has created these imagined communities. So y'all think y'all know each other because you're all being drawn to a central point through the technology. But that technology is impacting the governance conversation. It's shaping, influencing ways of knowing how we think about the world and each other. It is threatening to overrun movement and memory by rewriting it. Meaning what? People move from reading books, from attending lectures, from sitting and listening to elders in conversation, to waiting for Ken Burns to draw one of the most hated Black people of the 20th century by white America into a beloved position with a four-part documentary on Muhammad Ali. Again, I ain't mad at him because he's in the social structure trying to use the science and technology in a battle to absorb what is necessary out of the governance structure to maintain the hierarchy. Who made you the king of telling our story? Why, I did. Along with PBS, the Ford Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, and all the black money in the world I could find. And I got these curated black talking heads that I've been very careful to select for their capacity to say, yeah, I know black people burned down all the cities in America and did other things, but they were doing it because they believed in democracy. <laughs> see, see you you real careful about the Negroes you curate Ken Burns and I respect it I, you gain recognize game you curate the people you need to shape to the worldview that you have it's your job and I know ultimately at the end of the day what you really want you want a better society me too we all want a better society but 
you using our people as hand puppets in your vision. And that's fine. That's why you named this space narrative. It's narratives are by definition curations. You can't tell all the stories. So which is the value you want to uplift? Now, you like you said, we should it should be factual. So guess what? It's factual. Muhammad Ali say threw his, threw his gold medal in the river. Okay, right. Now, why did he do it? Okay, that's speculation. You can ask him, right? I mean, even when we talked last week about the, the, the Netflix documentary, Blood Brothers, you know, you ask Rahman, and then at the very end, you have his daughter, Hannah, say, yeah, you know, he said he regretted with Malcolm. Yeah, that ain't all he said about a whole lot of things, but you made selections in this documentary to line up with the, the narrative you need. All right. So by the time Booker Washington comes along, what's the what what does the social structure need? They need a labor force. Mm. They need us not to walk off those plantations. Or if we walk off the plantations in the South, former plantations, they need us to walk into the factories because the industrial revolution has really gotten underway. And now you're seeing the industrialization of the South. Okay. Uh, what about voting rights? We don't need y'all to vote. Well, who is we? Well, the Republican Party in the North, the party of business founded in the 1850s, uh, that became the anti-slavery party in part because slavery was bad for business, needed black voters in the South during Reconstruction to shore up the victory. Victory shored up? Good. Cut. You good? I'm good. Okay. Clan, White Citizens Council. Man, y'all a little extra with that. Yeah, I know, but you know, we live down here. Okay. Look, can y'all just at least try to keep the lynchings down under maybe a few dozen of them? Yeah, we could do that. Okay. Let's make this money. The North and South make up. You don't need them Negroes voting no more. <laughs> so they let them out. It's very simple. They, they betray. This is what Rayford Logan wrote about many years ago in, uh, I don't see my copy of it around here right now. I've been rereading the classics. That's what you should always do every once in a while, reread the classics. His book, The Betrayal of the Negro, The Nadir, it's a dark point, uh, 1877 to 1901 is what he says. So what does the social structure need? They need a labor force. All right. Well, so you're going to train a labor force. Yeah. What you need them to do? What were they doing for 300 years? Busting their ass. Okay. So y'all know how to pick cotton. Y'all know how to manage this thing. Not a problem. Um, we need to free y'all learn these machines, though. And we need somebody to kind of supervise y'all because, uh, okay, so you're going to need some schools. Yeah. What do you need to learn in the schools? We need them to learn how to work hard doing what we say. Okay. All right. So you see the idea. This is James Anderson's book, The Education of Blacks in the South, which I teach every fall in my Education in Black America class and surround it with more recent stuff. But Anderson really talks about these clashing objectives, because in the governance structure, you ask black people. Or the various black formations, because there's no one attitude, but within within the governance category, who are black people to each other? You ask those people, what do you want? I want to learn as much as I can about everything, because I understand that. If, as I get educated, I have better ways of understanding what's going on around here and I can make better choices. Okay. I want to learn how to read and write so I can get this job. And so, okay. What do you want to do? Well, I want to learn how to operate this machine. Okay. All right. Well, what do you want to do? I am 69 years old and I want to learn. I just want to learn how to read my Bible before I make transition. Why? Because I've been listening to this preacher my whole damn life and I'm not sure if you telling me the truth. Just 
baby, show me this A, B, C. And okay, I want to read it for myself. I mean, it's, so all these different things in the governance structure are debating, discussing, pushing against the social structures. And we don't need all that. We just need you to work. <laughs> and so who emerges at that time? What emerges is an education system where this debate is going on. And there's there are two groups, black and white. The white group is in control of black public education and black private education, K-12, if you want to call it that in today's terms, and higher ed, so to speak, normal schools, common schools, university, college. And then you have black. The blacks are not in control of K-12, elementary, secondary education, because that's decided at the state level, local level, and in the South, they're trapped in a system that don't want none of them to go to school. So white philanthropists like Rosenwald come in and say, we're going to help y'all build some schools. And then black people raise more money than Rosenwald building the schools. And to this day in the documentaries, they still call them the Rosenwald schools. Yeah, that's cute. Let's change. Can we change the name or at least put somebody else name the names of the communities next to Rosenwald? Nah, because you can't think outside of the, of the social structure. We got to change that. But in the public side, you've got some black people who do put together some black private schools. You got some black people who do put together some black colleges, the AME, particularly AME Church, CME Church, you know, fund black Baptists, put together some some resources. But this battle is being waged by people who in the social structure and the governance structure remember before the Civil War. So in the social structure, a lot of people looking at black people like they just ex-slaves. We got to help these ex-slaves and we're going to help them based on what we want and need. Among them, Oliver Otis Howard, the head of Freedmen's Bureau, Clinton B. Fisk, another Civil War uh, veteran soldier, um, uh, Samuel Chapman Armstrong, who founds Hampton. Hampton and Howard playing today, playing football here in the District of Columbia. It's a battle for the real HU. I'm laughing. In the social structure, the real HU is Harvard. Y'all know that's a governance structure conversation y'all have, which is great. I live in the governance structure. But let's be clear. Both of those schools, started by people who had agendas good bad or ugly for black people and not by you but you come to those schools with your own agendas and very shortly at howard hampton at fisk at, at, what you see is black students and their families pushing back against things they don't want to do coming to hampton which is a vocational education kind of concept and saying i came here to learn math you got me painting fence rails i'm against this writing home saying that you see a turn up at a lot of these places, eventually by the 1920s, it's going to really turn up. Read Raymond Walter's book, The New Negro on Campus, where you see these black people. Zona Hurston was in school at Howard at the time. I'm not going to chapel because it's compulsory. I'll go if I want to pray, hear the music, and be with my friends, but I'm not going because you told me to go. And then, and this, this damn military service, what the hell is that? You're going to see that over and over again at HBCUs in the 1920s. You're going to see it again in the 1960s with the Vietnam War. That's what sparks in part the Black Studies movement at Howard. The Black University movement, no more compulsory ROTC. You see this going on and on. But anyway, back map to Booker T. Washington. Washington emerges at a time when there's a raging debate on what to do with these millions of Black people who are no longer enslaved, who have been freed into a market economy with no money, and who are whose labor is needed to continue to expand the American settler state. But the settler state is a federated state. Meaning what? There is no such thing as the United States in terms of a, a national project. It's a bunch of states. And each of those states has its own characteristics, which then can break down to regions within those state formations and networks between the similar regions. Jackson, Mississippi shares more with Birmingham than Jackson and Birmingham and New Orleans and Nashville and Memphis share with New York City. 
there's a different notion. And the notion in the Deep South is based on maintaining the racial hierarchy. So into this field of violence in the social structure comes Booker Talia Farrell Washington, walks as we read up from slavery to Hampton, gets his education. Samuel Armstrong said, I like this guy. He can work for us. 1881, Tuskegee is founded. Booker T. Washington named the first principal. There are 14 volumes published. This ain't all the papers, but there are 14 published volumes of the papers of Booker Talia Farrell Washington. There is a library of books been written about Booker T. Washington, and they keep writing them, keep writing them, keep writing. Them. As I say, I wanted to like Booker T. Washington. Parts of him I do like, you know, but like or not like really shouldn't be my objective. But, you know, I feel like, yeah, yeah, I, I want to like Booker T. Washington. My mom was born right in the shadow of Tuskegee, Russell County, Opelika, Alabama, Phoenix City, across the state line from Columbus, Georgia. Then my people down there, John Henry Clark from Union Springs, right there. Then, you know, all of that, Tuskegee. My mom ran track at Tuskegee in the seventh, eighth grade. I mean, it was a, that, so that's my place. You know what I'm saying? One day, I hope one day I go down there and teach. I mean, because yeah, big house, we put one of the libraries right there. We just be in Tuskegee. One thing I like about Tuskegee, it's a Native American name. So I ain't got to worry about wearing a white man's name on my chest, repping the HBCU. I'm just saying certain things just, just feel better. <laughs> however, however, uh -oh. Booker Washington, who is a, you know, he's a venerated ancestor at Tuskegee. Every time I go down there, you know, you see the boulder he's buried under, the statue of Booker Washington, right over the hill, George Washington Carver, Monroe, Nathan Work, all them people down there, Eunice Rivers, who was the nurse in the Tuskegee uh, uh, project, all that, they're all buried there. It's, it's holy ground, it's venerated ground in our ways of knowing. Many ancestors buried on HBCU campuses. But Washington had an impossible trajectory. And that leads us finally to, as you say, you can hear, you can watch, you can see, uh, well, you can't see, but you can hear and you can read um, the Cotton Exposition speech of 1895. And so I decided to pull a copy because sometimes it's nice to say you know we like we you know I, people say um people say that hindsight is 2020 of course it is what were they saying at the time and so i pulled uh one of my copies of the great one carter Godwin woodson negro orators and their orations this is a this is a reprint i left the uh the original over there on the first team shelf, 1925. To the cherished memory of my sister, Susie Woodson. Carter Woodson says this. He's writing from Washington, D.C., 1925. These orations were to be edited by another writer, but because his many duties of his many duties, he had to abandon the task after having collected a number of the important discourses. The original plan was for a much smaller work than this, consisting of a few select orations of literary worth. In the hands of the new editor, in other words, when I took over, however, the plan was changed so as to include orations of all sorts. In fact, <laughs> I love when Woodson says this, this is September 1925, not even 100 years ago. Now we live in a society, as highly said, Howdy Grima said, you know, the children come here knowing everything, meaning what? You got access to everything. You can go down as we talk about rabbit holes. You can talk about anything you want as long as you want forever till you die. It still wouldn't even scratch the surface, right? In 1925, September 
1925. Carter Woodson says in this book, it consists in fact of practically all of the extant speeches of consequence delivered by Negroes of the United States. <laughs> 700 pages. If you gave a talk and had any kind of notoriety, or even if you didn't, Woodson put it in Negro orations. Oh man. So people now, I love these scholars now, we've discovered, and you are making discoveries because stuff is still out there. But go back and read what the ancestors wrote. Woodson, Black History Month. We talked about Woodson many times. Negro orators and their orations. When you look at the table of contents, he got James Fortin in here, Peter Williams, Dory Wright. Oh my God, William Whipper. Man, James McCoon Smith, Lennox Redmond, Charles Ramon, Fred Douglas, of course, all kind of stuff from Fred Douglas. Um, He's got all kind of people, and he don't have everybody. Blanche Kelso Bruce, he got the black politicians, John Lynch, Jefferson Long, he keeps going. I mean, it's not everybody, but he's got the South Carolinians who were in the Reconstruction uh, Congresses, like um, Joseph Rainey, John Mercer Langston. And so by the time you get to, oh man, Joseph Charles Price, some of y'all know about that Livingstone College. Go look up J.C. Price. He's buried at Livingstone. They called him the young Booker T. Washington, but he made transition when he was uh, young. Let's go to section 11, optimistic oratory. You see optimistic oratory there. Page 580, an address delivered at the opening of the Cotton States Exposition in Atlanta, Georgia, September 1895. Let's make this quick. Page 580. Booker Washington is asked to speak at this Atlanta Cotton Exposition. Now, he's not Nicki Minaj. He's not Lil Nas X. He don't have, he doesn't have the ability to be on cable television or network news as a talking head or a public intellectual. He's not a university uh, president who gets slotted in sometimes to give some remarks on something from time to time and therefore achieve some visibility. He doesn't have an Instagram account. He's not on TikTok. He's not a hip kind of hip-hop era kind of leader. He's a dude in rural Alabama who has been curated by white philanthropy and white educators who are trying to shape a workforce and keep the lid on a truce between the North and the South because mutual benefit. We're trying to take this whole continent. We got the Chinese out there that built the damn railroad, by the way. Uh, that's going to figure in this as well. Oh, man, I thought I had it. I'm, I just started reading this book. Oh, yeah. Ghosts of Coal Mountain, Gordon Chang, who's at Stanford. Ghost of Coal Mountain, the epic story of the Chinese who built the Transcontinental Railroad. I'm not exaggerating. Leland Gregory Stanford, Stanford University, was the chair of one of the Transcontinental, was two Transcontinental Railroad companies that built the Transcontinental Railroad. The one that one went from west to east, the other went from east to west, from Nebraska going that way, from California coming that way. The ones who worked California coming that way, mostly overwhelmingly Chinese. That's going to be a problem for them because once they've done their work, great. Now you got what? The Chinese Exclusion Act, 1882. These white people, man, this social structure is no joke. Gordon Chang is a fourth generation Californian. Remember, California comes in the, in, in the Union in 1850. Wait, 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 wait. You can look this up, Professor Hunter, while I'm doing it. Unless I'm misremembering, I think this, we're right around the anniversary of the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Uh, but at any rate, that Fugitive Slave Act in 1850 was passed as part of the calculus that allowed Maine and California to come in as free states in uh, 1850. California only goes back to 1850. Today, within, today is the is September 18th. 
You better See, I love it. This is what I look. I love that period. In my mind, the Civil War and Reconstruction, that is the formative period. In fact, my very good friend, Kinshasa Conwell, Deputy Director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, uh, she is supervising, overseeing the publication of the latest publication to come out of NAMAC, um, which is a book on Reconstruction, an edited volume on Reconstruction. I just agreed um, to uh, moderate a conversation with the authors in the book. I'm always very happy to do, I do anything for Kinshasa and her crew down there. I mean, mostly black women. Uh, educators, intergenerational, very important. The education division at NAMAC is just this this first rate, first rate to all of them. But at any rate, um, you know, I, I was telling Kinshasa, I'm like, you know, this is the most important period in American history. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and all them. Hey guys, bye-bye. I hope I would have had the courage if I was on one of your plantations to be trying to end your life every day. But these people, <laughs> and not because I hate you, because you got me enslaved, bro. You know, as Michael Corleone said, it's not personal. <laughs> At any rate, <laughs> it's only business. Well, I guess it will be a little bit personal once you start getting into rape and, you know, that's kind of thing. Yeah, it's going to be real personal. Uh, shout out to Mike Gomez in his book, Exchanging Our Country Marks, where he says, you know, the rape of black women in some ways galvanized the creation of what became black identity. Because all these people who didn't know each other, once you start doing that kind of sexual assault and you get and then people start having children as a result, you have now attacked the future of these people. In other words, you, you're taking the future away. Ironically, a guy born in 1856 in the spring of 1856 in Hale Ford, Virginia, was a product of a white father. Booker Taylor for your Washington. But at any rate, goes to Cold Mountain. That's going to be important in the, in the Atlanta Continental Exposition speech because Washington is trying to talk to everybody at the same time. And in that speech, which we can summarize, well, no, 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 no. I'm looking at the clock. We don't have but a minute. So let me just go this way. 14 volumes of the Booker T. Washington papers. It took me a few years to get them all. Um, University of Illinois Press did them. So for some reason, every time I went to Chicago, I could pick up one or two more volumes at places like Powell's Bookstore on 57th and Hyde Park, across from the University of Chicago. Real cheap. I don't even know how you could put those pieces together these days, but you know, that was 20 years ago, 25 years ago, little by little. And reading through the papers, you see all this correspondence back and forth. And the guy who edited those papers lived in lived in uh, DMV, lived in Silver Spring, Maryland, uh, Lewis Harlan. There've been a number of books written since then, but one of the go-tos for dealing with Booker T. Washington is the two-volume um, book by Lewis Harlan, the editor of the Booker T. Washington Papers, volume one, Booker T. Washington, The Making of a Black Radical, 1856, when he was born in 1901. The second volume is uh, Booker T. Washington. I thought I brought it over here, but it may be over there because I don't need it for this. Booker T. Washington, The Wizard of Tuskegee, 1901, till he dies in 1915. Uh, Booker Washington, I, I will mention just a little bit about him because we haven't really talked about Booker Washington, but we need to do something on him. Um, goes to Hampton in 1872. Um, studied law briefly. He was going to be a lawyer, 1877-78. Didn't stay. Then he goes and tries seminary. So you see Washington isn't the Washington we know, accommodationist, vocal this kind of thing. He's a young black man trying to figure out how to make his way in the world who, when he came out of enslavement. 
So he's going to lawyers kind of thing. He gets married several times. His first wife passes after their uh, daughter is born, Portia. Then he marries the principal at Tuskegee, Olivia Davidson, 1885. She passes away after Booker T. Washington Jr. and Ernest is born. Then he marries the sister who will survive him, Margaret Murray Washington. She became the principal of Tuskegee too. His whole life is invested in Tuskegee. He said, I never saw myself as somebody who would be a national leader. I never said I was going to be a national leader. However, he has the gospel of uh, he got the you know who put the battery in Booker's back? The battery put in Booker T. Washington's back is Samuel Chapman Armstrong, a racist who believed who believed that black people were inferior race, who thought that na- Indians needed to be a civilized. I'm using Indians instead of Aboriginals or, or Native Americans. That's what he would say. This guy's a racist, and, and, and his star pupil is Booker T. Washington, who is not Samuel Armstrong, who has his own ideas, but he's operating in a field of violence where you can still smell the smoke from the Civil War and hear the crack from slavery. You read up from slavery. I mean, you know, who wrote it? Was it Booker T. Washington? Was it T. Thomas Fortune? You know, it was Robert Park? Whoever. The point is this. It's his story. And using the science technology of the day, when that book is published in 1901, the same year, by the way, that the last black representative in the federal legislature, Congress, George White, out of North Carolina, lost his election. The same year that you see these lynchings escalate, as Ida B. Wells is writing about, they drop off from slavery because by then, they, who is they? Business interests, philanthropists, policymakers at the federal, at state, and local level have decided Booker is going to be your, your spokesperson, Negroes. And starting a tradition that persist, persisted until, uh, oh yeah, September 18, 2021. But anyway, the point is, and for the foreseeable future, this is your spokesperson. How you get on TV, how you get a book deal, how you get the bestseller, how you get on the award list. Hey, we're curating Negroes. This is a very different group than the ones y'all be talking to. But as long as you pay attention, we'll keep drumming them out. And guess what? We know that the system is getting closer to being renegotiated because the blacker the representatives get, the more the concessions have to be made. Booker Washington is, according to Adolph Reed, and I agree with him, I think, pretty much, is the first in that line not to come out of enslavement like Fred Douglas as, as, as one of the people to represent a class, but we need somebody who's going to be the face of what we want you Negroes to model. Now, what happens is, and then let me, well, let me, let me finish on Booker Washington. I'm looking at the clock. So let me finish on Booker Washington. Um, Washington has his own ideas. He's at Tuskegee. He's got a reputation of knowing how to talk to white people. He gets this white money. He gets the railroad cats, Baldwin and Carnegie and them giving him money. He's got the support of these northern white business people. He knows how to talk to these southern white people who have made up with these white people from the north. And so he knows how to bridge all that. But at the same time, he is building with them in his mind for self-sufficiency for black people. That's what Mark, Marcus Garvey liked about him. Booker T. Washington died in 1915. Marcus Garvey got here months after Booker Washington passed, goes to Tuskegee, wants to talk to him because he read up from slavery in Jamaica. So I like this because he's not reading it with the American race politics. He's reading it for the self-sufficiency. So in 1880, 1892, when Booker Washington calls the first Tuskegee conference, it's with an eye toward black economic self-improvement. He's at, But in order to get money for Tuskegee and because he believed it, which is why I can't go with him on this, Booker Washington would say crazy stuff about black people. They lazy. He wouldn't say they were lazy. He would say, if you invest in black people, we will turn from laziness and sloth and inefficiency to be, dude, 
all black people did was work for centuries. So uh, slavery was over and all of a sudden they became lazy. No, I need to check, bruh. <laughs> I book, but damn, you understand how they curating you to, this is what, I, oh man, I'd be Wells rain fire on his ass after 1895, after that speech. She was like, dude, really? Do you understand that what you said ain't going to stop one lynching because ain't none of what they doing to us involved have anything to do with our personality and our character. It has everything to do with race. As Ida Wells said, rape is an issue of race and power. You, you thinking about it wrong if you think in gender. It's not intersection. This is about power. Well, I'm using today her to critique today's language because people will go back in time, as my colleague Belithia Watkins Beatty always reminds us, and relabel people. She was a feminist. Get that anyway. Anyway, I'm not even gonna get into that. Anyway, the point is that Washington, in 1893 April, addresses a crowd of 2,000 white people mm. at the annual conference of Christian workers in Atlanta. That's the key to 95. It's 93. What else happened in 93? Remember, we did the whole thing on Aunt Jemima. They have the World's Fair in Chicago. Remember, Aunt Jemima's there. I was here, honey. Who else is there? Ida B. Wells is there with her friend I Garland, Garland Penn. And she's there with the old man, Fred Douglas. Remember, because they don't have no place for Black people at the World's Fair, the Columbian World's Fair, 1893. 400th anniversary of the start of this settler mess with Christopher Columbus. They are in Chicago, and the Haitians, remember, give the African Americans, the Africans from the United States, a place to kind of push their pamphlet why the Negro is not in the Columbian World's Exposition. That same year, Booker Washington gives this speech in front of 2,000 white people. There's no precedent for it. This guy, what? He did what? Wow. And as, as we don't have a lot of time right now, I'm going to summarize this very quickly. Washington. They say, this guy right here? Not bad. We like his attitude. We like his attitude. Why? You know, he ain't talking about racial equality. He ain't talking about voting rights. We didn't rewrote these state constitutions and he ain't really say too much about it. What does Washington do, though? Behind the scenes, he's funding legal challenges. Booker Washington pays for lawyers who argue what becomes Giles versus Alabama, the voting rights case in Alabama. Booker Washington is funding legal challenges to streetcar segregation in the South. Booker, But he ain't telling nobody. So this is why I kind of cut him a little slack. But every time I try to cut him a little slack, I get beat up by elders like my man, Vincent Franklin, uh, Vince P. Franklin, who was at Dillard for a while. When I met him, he was at Drexel, the, the African-American historian, good brother. I remember I was on a panel one time with him and Tiffany Ruby Patterson. And we talking about, I said, you know, Booker Washington, because I'm a Southerner. I want to let <laughs> Vince, <laughs> Vince Franklin was like, bro, that dude can't be redeemed. <laughs> it started going. I said, I know, man, I know. But I mean, it's hard because Booker Washington makes it hard. There's a case where a brother was, a, he was a lawyer in Tuskegee, black man. White people decided you got to go. They go to his house, tell him you got to six o'clock to get out of town. They Then they go over to his house. He got $2 a son. They go over there and the man starts running, trying to escape. He goes to the white boy nest. This lynch mob is so damn apt to get him. They start shooting at him close. They get up on him, pull the trigger. He's able to get out of the way of the bullet. The bullet hits the white dude who's trying to help him in the throat. Now they all distracted trying to help. This guy some kind of way makes it to the campus of Tuskegee. <laughs> Book, help me, hide me. Booker T. Washington does not hide him. What? Nope. The white people in Tuskegee 
think, see, you did the right thing. Booker T. Washington can be trusted. He ain't going to protect no Negroes, these uppity Negroes. But what does he do? Booker Washington gives the man money out of his own pocket, sneaks him out and kind of a reverse underground railroad type of thing. The man gets out of town, heals up, is in Mississippi, comes back to Alabama, eventually asks and gets a letter from Booker T. Washington to in support of him getting a job near in near a nearby county adjacent to Alabama years later because he had gone to Tuskegee as a student. But Booker T. Washington couldn't be seen. And somebody white people couldn't rely on. I mean, the guy is like. <laughs> I mean, so it is literally the man was born in slavery. Yes. Okay. And he got out and went and educated himself. I remember the story of him walking to, um, was it Hampton? Yes, that's what he did. Sleeping on the street. That's got right. there, arrived there filthy. They wouldn't see him, wouldn't admit him, made him uh, clean or sweep up. And he did that. He cleaned yep. to get in. He he got on his hands and knees and was impeccable in the cleaning. Yeah. Read this and up from slavery. Yeah. So it's it's complicated. You know, those aren't these times where we can we can't give people a free pass now. But if the man was doing a duplicitous thing in terms of building institutions, understanding the world in which we're just coming out of out of bondage, out of slavery. Yes. White people are evil. Yes. They're not going to capitulate. Right. So let's build this institution in the midst of this white hatred. It still exists. It's still, you get, you're wearing a shirt right now. We got, American, we got Milano Richie in them. We got, you no, know, no question. A lot of people. From they, got, they got the best, they got the, as far as I'm concerned, they got the best HBCU spirit song. And I, that's from Tennessee State. We got the TSU Blues, but I love Ball and Parlay. Ball and Parlay, Tuskegee, y'all get the joint. I mean, no question. They, they, they get, probably got a game this weekend. It's still there. That's exactly right. So, I mean, you know, two. I always say two things can be true. That's right. It's not irredeemable because we always are applying now time to the things in which people, I don't know what bondage, we all have our bondage dreams. If I was, if I was on that, I would have done X, Y, no, you would have picked that cotton. You would have picked that cotton. (laughs) You would have done all of the things that your ancestor did because there were very few options. Yes. Punk asses. See? Right? So I'm thinking. But, 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 But I don't know, Professor Hunter. The reason I say that is because you're right, of course. And that we're here. We have the benefit of hindsight. However, when you ask the question, was there anybody around? And it wasn't Du Bois. When du, look, when Booker Washington gave his speech in Atlanta in 1895. Now, mind you now, remember I said he gave the speech in, two, in, in, in 93. The following year, 94, the Georgia white boys go to Washington, D.C. to get funding. They want to have a version of an exposition like the World's Fair in the South. And they bring three or four black people with them, including a bishop of the uh, Amy Church. Booker Washington's on the delegation that goes to Washington. He gives a talk. They give up the money. And then they say, we want you to head up the Negro building. Then they have a fight. Should we put black exhibits in all of the different things or should they just have a building? Segregation. Booker Washington said, I'm too busy at Tuskegee. Take my man, I Garland Penn. Yes, I Garland Penn, who was in the Columbian Exhibition in 93. He's working that, right? Penn gets in, the young boy, he's like, Book, you speaking. I don't give a damn what they say. Penn twists the arms of the entire committee in Georgia, and they allow Booker Washington five minutes to talk. That's why the speech is so short. 
And then 95 comes along and Booker Washington is worried now. That whole cast down your buckets where, where you are. Yeah. He stole that from a young boy who gave a talk in Washington, D.C. at the Congregational Church, the same place American Negro Academy used to meet. And he, he this, this, this brother used that metaphor to say, we do not need to depend on white people. Cast down your bucket with us. Book remixes it to basically be like, we don't want to have no interaction with y'all. And then the separate is the fingers and as one is the hand, he lifts that from earlier speeches he gave. The speech he gave in Atlanta was not was a remix and then took stuff and he said, I got to speak to Northern white people, Southern white people, and Black people at the same time. His man, R. Garland Penn, they get the Negro building built. The next fight is who going to build it? They let the they gonna let a contract to the white boys. Penn is like, hell no, black people gonna build this. Black brick layers, black brick masons, they build the Negro building and it's just as good or better as any other building they built in Atlanta. He, Washington, pulls together, first of all, he, he deals with Maggie, his wife, Margaret. He reads the speech to her. She gives all the critique. He said, okay, I'll make these notes. Then he calls together the Tuskegee faculty. Then he reads it to them. They get a critique. He said, okay, this will work. Then he comes to Atlanta. He said, you read this in Up From Slavery. I get off the train. Old black people, this is the man that's going to speak for our race. White people slam me. And then, Karen, you can't make this up. You cannot make, this is why I suggest y'all read how Harlan, because Harlan's going through the documents. Then you see it in the papers. Booker T. Washington gets on stage. I Garland Penn's on stage. These white people, it's a thousand people can't get in. White people are like, what the hell is this? The white ex-governor up there. They play the Star Spangled Banner. They cheer. Then the next song, oh, I wish I were in the land of cotton. He's sitting there on the stage. They play Dixie. Then they play Yankee Doodle Dandy. They all cheer. They go through all these speeches. The white boy gets up, the MC, and says, now we're going to hear from one of the leading educators of our time. They all start cheering. Washington gets up, dead ass silence. Wait, what? <laughs> then, then the guy says, this is the leader of his race or something like that. Then all the black people in the segregated thing start cheering. The white people start cheering. Booker Washington then delivers that speech where he says, we can be as separate as the fingers, as one of the hands for mutual progress. Cast down your buckets where you are. We don't need to be agitating for these rights, even as he's secretly funding all this stuff. We know I mean? And at the end, people crying, people cheering. The governor comes up, shakes his hand, everything. And he's off to the races. The white press reports it. It's incredible. And then, finally, the black people mixed bag. The people in D.C., the Bethel Literary Society, oh, they hate it. Like, this is the Negro that wouldn't protect the guy when he came to the house because they don't know about the other thing because you got to read the papers for that because he ain't tell nobody. Right. Out of Wells, two, three years, a year after Du Bois writes the soul, I'm sorry, when he gave the speech, guess who sent him a telegraph saying this was brilliant. It was a real triumph. Writing from Wilberforce, W.E.B. Du Bois. Because remember, Booker T. Washington tried to hire Du Bois, but he got the offer from Wilberforce before. Otherwise, he'd have been in Tuskegee. And he would, anytime they would attack Booker T. Washington, he said, my faculty is black. I believe in liberal arts. And of course, we talked about that another time. I won't get into that, about the Carnegie Hall meeting and they had the secret meeting where they tried to squash the beef. But Booker T. Washington was a straight Michael Corleone type. He would try to end you. He would try to ask Hubert Harrison and them boys. He'd try to get Robert Terrell, Mary Church Terrell's uh, uh, husband. They, he would ask you, ask our sister, the millionaire, the great 
uh, Sarah Breedlove, uh, Madam C.J. Walker, kept out the National Negro Business League leadership. I mean, this guy had problems, but he's trying to balance everything. And then they say this. This is what Ida B. Wells writes. The demand from this class of Negroes is growing. In other words, other leaders, that if Mr. Washington cannot use his great abilities and influence to speak in defense of and demand for the rights withheld when discussing the Negro question, for fear of inquiry, to injury to his school by those who are intolerant of Negro manhood. What she's saying is, because you know who benefited from Booker T. Washington? Tuskegee and Booker T. Washington. Mm. But what Ida B. Wells is saying, you were able, and think about that, fast forward to today. Yes. Negroes benefit individually from tap dancing, mm. but the race keeps getting shot in the street. So what Adol Reed is saying, this was the template. There are no, when, when they curate your leaders, they're doing it to maintain the hierarchy. Those leaders aren't gonna, you know, I don't care how many things you write, how many things you publish, how many shows you go on to argue passionately, how many times you become the face of the white opposition. You've been curated. You have to turn away from that. Finally, Ida Wells says they demand that he refrain from assuming to solve a problem which is too big to be settled within the narrow confines of a single system of education. And then Harlan writes at the end of his chapter on this, which is chapter 11, he says, this is fascinating. The Southerners sought a black man who would symbolize that reconstruction was over. And one they could consider an ally against not only the old Yankee enemy, the Southern, but the Southern populist and labor organizer. That's the wave that's going to produce a Melvin Tolson. If y'all remember from the great debaters, Denzel Washington and them white boys meeting in the barn trying to, they don't want that. And Washington allows himself to be used. Remember that speech is also anti-immigrant. He said, don't be doing with them immigrants. Come with us. Who are the immigrants? Those white Germans or whoever else. And who else? Chinese. Exactly. The Chinese. He's selling everybody out and Henry McNeil Turner and them guys are saying, maybe we should just leave this country. He's also battling the people who are saying we should just go to Africa, like Henry Turner, who is from South Carolina, but who was a legislator in Georgia. Washington's speech is not a speech that does anything for him but protect Tuskegee, keep the dollars coming in, and then the white people curate him, make him a leader. He said, I wasn't trying to be a leader. And then Harlan writes that they wanted a black spokesman who could reassure them against the renewal of black competition and racial strife. You won't calm these white workers down. And Northern whites as well were in search of a black leader who could, who could give them a rest from the eternal race problem. That's what they looking for. In other words, the white liberals like today, I will find this book I'm reading now. It just came out this, uh, I don't have it right here. I showed it to you. Uh, the white dude just wrote this book. I don't see it in here, but he's, his argument is, White liberalism, they just want the race problem to go away. Damn. Can we hire three more of y'all to write some uh, articles in the newspaper and the magazine excoriating us? Will that do it? Shit. <laughs> oh, I'm, not, oh, I'm not giving you stock in the company now. You ain't taking over the company. You're going to have to build Nubia narrative for that. And you ain't going to do that. Why? Because the other side of the coin is this is what the young people call the Pickney Negroes. You want to be chosen. Now, come on now. And y'all know how it works. When the pimps start choosing, then go back to the movie, The Mac. 
your hoe chose me. <laughs> in other words, <laughs> you know, I'm looking for somebody to protect me out here. What did Grandmaster Flash the Furious Fire say? She had to get a pimp. She couldn't make it on her own. Meaning what? I'm trying to be famous. I'm trying to be the leader. I'm trying to be the spokesperson. And this tradition of pick me Negro starts with Booker T. Furrow Washington. And to this day, it's about individuals looking to be curated. Curate me. Curate me. I will not stray outside the lines. Meanwhile, Harlan, Reed, everybody else out of Wells understands that that only gets individuals to be set off lovely. And what it leaves behind is the structural crisis. And that's the crisis of Booker Washington on the 126th anniversary of the Cotton Exposition speech, at least in part. And, you know, and, and in defense of the Pikmin Negroes, I feel like they feel that once they get picked, they're going to do what's right. I agree. I agree. Which means they are completely ahistorical. Y'all should read some history. <laughs> they feel like, I'm going to bring in um, George Washington Carver. I'm going to build this school. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to have a school in Africa. I'm going to, you know, uh, employ people. I'm going to have a studio. I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm going to do all of the things. Oh my God. I know you got to, I know we got to go, but I, I must tell you, get, get the Journal of Negro History. Y'all, y'all look this up and you know, listen, I, Professor Hunter, I, I love you so much. And I thank you so much. The team you are building, the team we are building. We, we got researchers, you young people, y'all watching this say, oh, how do I how do I get down? Come over, help us do some research. I'm gonna tell you the research team gonna find this. There's an article in the Journal of Negro History. I first heard about it from John Henry Clark. Come on, girl. You I'm a, I think I'm I'm gonna switch out of this shirt, this hoodie, and put that shirt on and walk around outside. I want everybody to see this. <laughs> anyway, uh John Clark once gave a talk, he said. Look in the pages of the old Negro history books. There's an article uh, in Journal of Negro History. It's called Booker T. Washington and the Ulrich Affair. I'm sitting there. This is New York, 145th and Convent, First World. I'm on the floor, three feet in front of, in front of John Henry Clark. I'm sitting on the floor. He at the table, sitting, can't see. I'm sitting there. I go look it up. U-L-R-I-C-H, Henry Ulrich caned Booker Washington in the ten, in the, in the red light district in Manhattan. He claimed Booker T. Washington was ringing doorbells, looking through peepholes, trying to get with white women. Long story short, Booker T. Washington was beat up just before he died in New York. And the reason that Clark used that article was because Booker T. Washington's reputation got severely damaged because they tried to say you really want white women i want y'all to think about that the same people that build you will destroy you within a few months washington was dead he went back to Tuskegee and he died but clark's point was they make you they can break you and i i agree with you people say no i'll be the one i can change this you no, you can't change it there once you're curated that means you can be decurated look Look, let me not, no, no, don't even, that reminds me of Sterling Brown. During the Harlem Renaissance, Sterling Brown said, Langston Hughes and them, they cool. But let me be very clear. There ain't no Harlem Renaissance. Do you understand that's Carl Van Vechten and them boys curating Negroes they like? I mean, so this isn't just us looking back. During the time, they understood how this works. They're picking Negroes. So every pick me Negro, trust us. With all the best intentions, y'all gonna change everything and y'all gonna do Okay, good luck. We're building. You see that right there? Come get that right there. Yeah. As the sister said, get this dance. <laughs>
Get this dance. <laughs> Get this dance. <laughs> Come on, y'all. All right, I'm sorry. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. All right. I love listen. Listen. Um, say less. We say got less. more work it's to do. Those of you who are not in narrative yet, um, you know, that's fine. As I, I was saying to you before we got on this, you know, those who hear will hear. With those who have an ear will hear. That's right. We need people who are bringing a break. We don't need folk who are throwing them. Oh, no question. No question. Yeah. Well, you can't tear us down anyway. We built this one out of brick. Huff and puff. But don't come over here huffing and puffing. We got too much work to do. We, we try to pour clean glasses of water. No Iron Man suits at the Met. No arguing about swollen. No, no. Let me use the prime minister's words. Uh, flat tires. We're just going <laughs> to... All right, I love you. I know you gotta go. Hey, everybody who's in Nubia right now, just for the record, they were like, "Why didn't I get?" You know, like we we're gonna go live in Nubia every week, regardless. And then the first, the second week of Saturday live on YouTube until we don't go live yeah. on YouTube and only in narrative. I'm foreshadowing yes. that's gonna happen at some point because now we have the system to do that. Yes, and yes. why why be in a space where we can't be completely free when we have a space where we can? So we're going to be transitioning in. Hopefully y'all come with us. If you don't, no problem. We're going to be here doing the work. And we got young people coming up like that. Hold that shirt up one more time. Come on. A blessing to know. Yes. Come on, Darian. This is the inspiration. And that's inspired by you in in this class. That young lady watched you. And this is what she did in her Zoom in her class. And she ordered ordered a Fia and them's book, which means she now with the ancestor. Come on. You can't stop us. Fertilizer. Yes. Yes. All right. See y'all next week. God bless. See you in them, in them narrative. See you in the streets. See you in the narrative streets. In the Nubia streets.